Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Every single day when I open my email recently, there's a news alert waiting for me about the economy. But the problem is that half the time the news is great, tons of jobs, wages rising, the economy cranking, and half the time it's terrible. A stock market sell-off, falling consumer sentiment, etc. What's going on? We'll ask the experts to make sense of it for us if they can, and we'll want to know from you how you decide if the economy is cooking or just cooked. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The various economic metrics don't seem to add up these days. Consumer spending's up year over year, but the country's gross domestic product fell during the first quarter. Home values are higher than ever in most cities, as just about every Bay Area resident knows. But don't check that 401k balance, as the stock market has been declining. Wages are finally inching up for most workers, but inflation is taking a bite out of that purchasing power. And employers continue adding jobs, but workforce participation hasn't bounced back. Here to dive into the weirdness of this American economy, we're joined by Jerry Nicholsberg, an adjunct professor of economics at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and director and senior economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. We're also joined by Tara Sinclair, professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington University. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Uh, Tara, I think I would like to start with you. I mean, a lot of headlines these days, including our own, use words like weird, confusing, unusual to describe the current economy. What's your take on what's happening and whether it's actually fair to describe the economy that way right now? Well, first of all, I do definitely think it is fair to describe the economy that way. And if we think about where we've come from, we came from a recession that we consistently described as unprecedented. We hadn't seen anything like a pandemic-driven recession in, in any of the history that we are using for building our forecasting models. And so seeing all of the shifts in the economy that took place, moving from services to more emphasis on goods and all of that, and all of the policy responses that were also unprecedented, it's not a surprise that we are still in this continued recovery, seeing a lot of unprecedented or otherwise weird behavior in the economy. 
Yeah. Do you trust the data that's coming out? Oftentimes economic data is restated as time goes on. Do you trust that like where you have a fairly accurate picture of what's happening or do all those unprecedented events kind of throw off the way that we actually capture this data and create these statistics? Yeah, let me be really clear on this. The U.S. government is doing their very best to put together the data that they're delivering, and they're trying to deliver it at a high quality and timely way. They are facing challenges, but you know, I think it's really important to know that you know, there are many economists out there. And in fact, you know, some of my own you know, research projects have been you know, trying to catch any sort of uh, nefarious behavior on the part of the government in terms of releasing the data. And it would make an economist's career if we found <laughs> such a thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's really clear that you know the data can be weird, it can be challenging for them to do a good job, but they are trying their best. Yeah. And I didn't mean to suggest nefarious play here or that they were cooking the books. Almost, almost the opposite. I mean, if you were cooking the books, this isn't what you would do, right? Um, more just that it's a good it, point. <laughs> it seems difficult to uh, to capture all of these uh, all these trends as they're changing. Um, Jerry uh, Nicholsberg, in your time forecasting the California economy, what do you see that's unusual about these current trends? So, when we think about California or even uh, the nation, as uh, Tara was talking about. Uh, these are unusual times, uh, and you asked about data. The data is accurate the way it is defined, but unusual times delivers unusual data. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing about California is, in spite of the narrative to the contrary, uh, in the first three quarters of last year, which is the which are the three quarters that we have data on, California was the fastest growing large economy in the U.S. And there's also been a narrative that uh, California's non-pharmaceutical interventions to flatten out the curve uh, during the early part of the pandemic in 2020 killed off the economy relative to some other states. And the data actually shows the opposite is true. So we are seeing, as you started out, uh, some data that is for many people confusing because there's a lot. There are a lot of narratives out there that are to the contrary of the actual data of what's going on. So, what do you think is actually going on then? Uh, what is going on in the economy is a bifurcation of where demand is, and of who is hurt uh, as we move forward. And demand is now centered on goods production, on technology, on construction and beginning to come back in leisure and hospitality in some respects, but in other respects, it's not. So this is a recession that has fallen, uh, recession and recovery that's fallen squarely on low-income individuals uh, because it's the low-income sectors that are are suffering. And that's where you find the unemployment uh, in California and nationwide. You know, the uh, unemployment and job force numbers are, are are quite interesting, Tara Sinclair, because we have been seeing basically labor force participation had been falling for a long time, it's really been falling for a couple decades, totally fell off a cliff during the pandemic and hasn't really inched up to the previous trend line, even though we've had gangbusters job reports, um, you know, month after month. So talk us through those two pieces of data. 
Sure. Well, it, and it does get tricky because we're talking about two different surveys that we're looking at for the employment numbers that we tend to focus on in the monthly BLS employment situation report come from a survey of employers, whereas the uh, measures of labor force participation come from a separate survey of, of households. But it is true that when we're watching what's happening with the households, that's really important for measuring the unemployment rate. That's where we get that number from. And you know, one thing we've seen is that the unemployment rate has come down quite dramatically and quite quickly, uh, which is, is really, a, I think, a success story of the recovery. But now we still need to draw people back into the labor force because this is true not just for older workers who may have chosen to, to retire uh, perhaps a little bit earlier than initially planned, but also for prime age workers. We're still down quite a bit there as well. Although it, we, we are still on a, on a projected path of seeing the prime age uh, employment rate coming back to at least where we were before pre-pandemic, probably later this summer. Uh, but you know, we do have to keep in mind that we do have an aging population. And so some of that particularly long-term trend in labor force participation is being driven by the retirements of the baby boomers. You know, it's interesting, though. I was looking at those numbers, and a lot of the labor force participation is in really young people, though, too, right? I mean, that it seems like it's the sort of 16 to 24 that's fallen off more than everybody else. And we actually see more older workers, right? Yeah, well, so that's a really interesting pattern that we've seen. Uh, and in fact, you know, people have talked about some unretirements of older workers, but also the uh, younger cohorts have have gone through really a seesaw throughout uh, this uh, pandemic. You know, they they were um, you know, rough, roughly hit initially, then they started to recover, and then they recovered more slowly. You know, there's been this whole you yeah. know, back and forth in terms of of their performance. But, you know, as, as Jerry was pointing out earlier, you know, we, when we think about which groups have been you know, disproportionately impacted, you know, one, one of the groups is uh, people with less education. Mm-hmm. And so people that are you know, trying to look for full-time jobs in that you know, teenage age range are often people who uh, have perhaps not even completed high school or have uh, you know, stopped at a high school degree rather than going on to college. Yeah. We're talking about why the U.S. economy feels weird right now with Tara Sinclair, professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington University, and Jerry Nicholsberg, an adjunct professor of economics at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and director and senior economist at the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And we want to hear from you. How do you measure the strength of the economy? Like, what are your... Uh, economic factors that you're looking at. You know, I was in the financial district this weekend. It was totally empty. And in the old days, I would have thought, boy, this is bad for this city. But now I'm not sure anymore. Give us a call. The number's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Jerry Nicholsberg, I wanted to ask you about the supply chain issues that feel like one of the structural factors undergirding this weirdness. Um, do you think that we're through those primarily, or are we just waiting to be hit with a, another round of it, given what's been happening in, in China and the various COVID-related restrictions there? I would say that the answer is we're anything but through with it uh, for two reasons. One you point out, which is what's happening in China when you shut down large ports, uh, such as the port of Shanghai, 
and you create bottlenecks there, that's going to feed all the way down the line into supply chains uh, into the US and for the US consumer. And that means that the high prices that have been a consequence of that are gonna be with us for a while. But then you add to that the interruption of oil and gas and wheat because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and you get a kind of a double whammy. Uh, we are seeing some movement towards the increased production of petroleum, but that takes time. So supply chain issues are gonna be with us certainly into 2023. And, and that means those prices that we've seen accelerate uh, here in California are not coming down anytime soon. Yeah, and you have been tracking demand for goods uh, through time. How much of that manufacturing can come back on shore, or is it just at this point more or less impossible, particularly in the sort of short term, to change the way those supply chains work? It depends on what kind of manufacturing. Advanced manufacturing, the manufacturing of chips and the like, the processing of rare earth metals, all of that seems to be coming back on shore. But the manufacturing that went offshore because of the comparative advantage of large, less skilled workforces in Asia, that's not coming back. Some will move to Mexico uh, just as a matter of, of protecting supply chains. But most of that is going to stay in Asia. Yeah. When it's also all those intermediate things, too. I was hearing a story from a friend who's been waiting for a couch she ordered six months ago because the fabric that goes on the couch is only manufactured in a particular place in China and haven't been able to make enough. Uh, we're talking about why the U.S. economy feels so weird right now with Jerry Nicholsberg, adjunct professor of economics at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and director and senior economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast, as well as Tara Sinclair, professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington University. And again, we want to hear from you. How do you measure the strength of the economy? What are your personal indicators for that you use to judge how the economy is doing? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more on the economy after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jerry Nicholsberg, Director and Senior Economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast, Tara Sinclair, Professor of Economics and International Affairs at George Washington University. And we're talking about why the U.S. economy feels weird and who it feels weird to. And we want to bring in another voice. Sonia Diaz is the founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so, Sonia, can you talk about how the pandemic has impacted Latinos and other specific groups in California? I mean, Jerry mentioned it earlier. Is this kind of booming economy here in California, is it leaving some people out? You know, I think it's leaving a lot of people out and it's leaving a lot left to be desired. Our research at the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at UCLA has really studied the impact of health and wealth during COVID-19. And what we found are some glaring disparities whereby some Californians are left at a disadvantage even when policymakers are trying to do right by putting lots of different types of programs, whether it's renter's assistance or we're thinking about small business paycheck protection program funding to keep businesses afloat on the table. Those types of relief programs really are actually doing the opposite in terms of communities of color and in particular Latinos. And what I mean by that is is that we know that COVID-19 has impacted Latinos in terms of infection and mortality more than any other racial and ethnic group. And what's really hard about that is that Latinos are young. They are younger than other racial ethnic groups and COVID-19 is hitting them in their most productive years. Mm -hmm. So when policymakers, whether in Sacramento or Washington, D.C., are trying to invest in dealing with the harm of this pandemic, our research at UCLA has found that some of these interventions have actually worsened inequality. And that was true with the Paycheck Protection Program, and that is also true with some of the rent relief, where we found that Asian Americans and Latinos were most in need of this relief and least likely to get it. What do you think should have been done so that didn't happen? I mean, that seems like obviously a bad thing. So what should have happened differently in the rollout of that program? Well, I think one of the things that we have to understand is that people are in crisis mode, um, and they're in crisis mode coming off of intersecting crises, whether this was a housing crisis, if you remember Governor Gavin Newsom at a State of the Union, um, State of the State address in 2020, allocated the entire time to homelessness. And then we go into COVID-19. So we were already in an economic precarious situation where there was income inequality that was just exacerbated. And where policymakers are trying to stop the bleeding, what needs to happen is the infrastructure and institution building in trusted messengers and civil society organizations that can adequately get people to enroll in these programs, whether it was, you know, the CARES Act stimulus rebate program, or even in conceptualizing, you know, this gas subsidy that the legislature and the governor's office are debating about. We need to make sure that whatever type of policy is created, that it is thinking about who's hurting the most versus putting more money in the pockets of people that need it, um, but don't need it as much. You know, we know that Latinos are much less likely to own their homes than white Californians. So what does it mean for for the group when home prices really go up in the way that they have um, over time? And how does that relate to the broader economic trends that you're seeing? 
Well, I think that one of the things that we have to think about is that this isn't a Latino problem. This is a California problem. And what I mean by that is that if Latinos, who are the state plurality population, meaning they have the largest numbers of people in the state than any other racial ethnic group, if they are not being able to take advantage of wealth building opportunities, including home ownership, then we all suffer. Ultimately, we have an aging um, and, and white electorate that really has dictated public policy. And when we think about their transition and transfer of wealth, they're going to need people to buy their homes to maintain that money within the family. Ultimately, the wages are such that some people are not able to purchase homes. And in fact, many people, because the cost of homes are so high. So, you know, Alexis, to your point, less than half of Latinos own their home in California. And this is research out of my shop out of UCLA. And the other thing that I think is really salient there is, is that Latinos had the second lowest medium home values among major, major racial groups. So not only um, are they less likely to own homes, the value of their home leaves a lot to be desired. Um, stick with us for uh, for a sec. We've got a uh, housing call that I want to get to. Uh, Pat in Marin, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm a uh, real estate agent here in Marin County, and I would like to report that paradise still exists in the economy, and there are lots of very wealthy people in kind of this la-la land of denial that everything is okay. And, uh, so what I are you seeing? You're seeing lots of competition over particular homes and, and just crazy prices? Feel so, yes, we have a weekly sales meeting where we hear the eye poppers of the week. And it's the $2 million house in Tiburon that went out the door at four point something. Oh, you know, or the Mill Valley place with the pool that you know, went for six million when everyone thought it was going to go for three and a half. So mm. the escalation of prices in the high end of real estate is huge. And it's because every time there's an IPO, there's another thousand guys walking around with $10 million in their pocket. Pat, right? you know, so does this economy- worry you? I, I would imagine as a real estate agent, this is would be a good thing. Um, but it, it sounds like it worries you a little bit. Well, I'm the author of a book about the wisdom of Buckminster Fuller from the previous century. And so, yes, I'm worried. I see a lot of, uh, what is it? The house is made of straw, you know? It's, um, what, what, before Rome fell, there was this great sense of everything is wonderful. And if you live in Marin County right now, I'm actually looking out over the College of Marin swimming pool. Mm-hmm. Um, where people are swimming laps and I'm going into row on the Erd machine yeah. and yeah, it's paradise here. The weather's always beautiful. Um, and there are a lot of people in Marin County who are working to save the world. The Buckminster Fuller Institute in San Francisco, you should have them on as a guest. They just <laughs> did a, they just did a global program bringing in 144 scientists and artists from throughout the world who were, working for a year together in teams on their projects to further yeah. the chances for humanity's success. So, well, and yeah, I but think happy it's to a... entertain any questions about real estate because it's, <laughs> uh, it's, cra- it's sure. crazy. It's crazy over here. Thanks so much, Pat. You know, I, I think that it is true, Sonia Diaz, 
that it's easy to imagine when you're in Marin that you're in paradise. That is true. Um, but I wonder when you look at the way that wages look for low-income Californians, low-income Latinos, where do they get onto the housing ladder is a, is a big question for our local economies. Yeah, and, you know, I think that that's really a salient point, both in terms of paradise and then the circumstances that afford some people that paradise. And those circumstances are the working poor. And so our research out of UCLA shows that Latinos have some of the highest workforce participation rates. And this is going to remain true because they're young, right? They're in their most productive years. But even um, being gainfully employed, our research found that Latinos are more likely to live in poverty. And 17% of Latino households live below the federal poverty line, which, again, is, is not um, something any of us want to be. That line is just so static. But what we also understand is, is that one in four Latino children lives in poverty. So when we think about home buying, it's important to have a roof over your shoulders, right? Just in terms of being able to wait out this COVID-19 pandemic. And we saw the density and the multi-generational family structure of communities of color really made it so that so many more people were infected with COVID-19. What we're talking about with home ownership is something different. This is wealth. This is assets. This is a foray in terms of retirement security benefits, in terms of stock options, and it's something that remains closed for a number of reasons. First, we don't have enough homes. We really have not been building the homes of the future and the homes of today. Secondly, we haven't been preserving affordable housing and then also growing that, especially in places that are booming, like the Bay Area and Los Angeles, but other places that are becoming these smaller economies with a strong punch, like the Inland Empire, right? We know all of the warehousing for buying stuff online is going there. And so policymakers really need to think about how are we going to get shelter to people given the endemic, but then how are we going to ensure that there's wealth creation? So it's not just people that are working at a tech company that are able to buy this or businesses that are just buying entire blocks, like is the case in West Adams in Los Angeles. And so there needs to be tangible policy, but there also needs to be enforcement. And that's one of the things that we're seeing in our California Department of Justice and in our legislature. How can we help people with down payments, but also how can we ensure local jurisdictions are doing the type of planning necessary to have more equity so that our economy in California remains the fifth largest in the world? We're talking about why the U.S. economy feels so bifurcated and weird right now and how different groups are being affected by the changes in the economy with Sonia Diaz, the founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at UCLA, Jerry Nicholsberg, uh, director and senior economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast, and Tara Sinclair, professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington. And, you know, Jerry, I wanted to ask you, we're talking about housing and in its relationship to the broader economy. And we also know that interest rates have begun to go up. The Fed has been raising them and they're what, what's available to consumers. Um, the rates are, are also going up. What does that mean for home buying um, for Californians? So let's begin with interest rates. As interest rates go up, the demand for housing goes down because at any given price of a home, the home now becomes more expensive. So we're expecting the increase in home prices that have been uh, 
pretty amazing over the past couple of years, uh, certainly since the pandemic started, to abate and to have a much more normal annual appreciation of home prices. Uh, one thing that might be surprising uh, to people in California is that as high as our home prices have gone up, the home prices in the places Californians are moving to, such as Austin and Phoenix and Seattle, have been going up even faster. And so the difference is really being compressed. Uh, but I'd like to, to weigh in just for a moment on the uh, disparity. You know, we talked about uh, inequality and how this recession and recovery has been uh, affecting differentially those who have less income, who have less education, and are therefore much less likely to be able to purchase a home. Uh, the higher interest rates are going to make it harder for them to purchase a home. And, uh, and the solution of building more housing, that's a 20 or 30 year solution because of capacity constraints. So in the near term, one needs to think about what policies can alleviate, but it won't eliminate uh, that situation. Yeah. Let's bring in Phil from Burlingame, who has a question about interest rates. Welcome to the show, Phil. Hi, great show. My question is about inflation, interest rates, and national debt. So globalization is rolling back because of COVID and politics. So, you know, my, the microeconomics is the supply chain is causing structural inflation. Yet there's a simplistic monetarist view that raising interest rates works because there's too much money chasing too few opportunities. And here's my question. We have the national, the national debt is the highest ever. So won't raising interest rates increase the debt service to the, you know, the national debt and cause inflation? I mean, it, it seems like it's not the right solution to the problem. It sounds like the mistake that started the Great Depression. Hmm. Uh, thanks for that, Phil. Uh, Tara Sinclair, do you want to uh, take that one on relationship between yeah. the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, the, I mean, and, and Phil's absolutely right that one of the concerns about the higher interest rates is the higher debt service. And, you know, the, the way that we're going to pay higher debt service is probably through, uh, you know, higher taxes or less services from, from the federal government uh, in order to, to make those payments. And so that is something that is, is concerning. Uh, that won't directly, uh, you know, in, in standard models cause inflation itself, but you can imagine that there's a lot of pressure for uh, you know, pol politicians to want to keep interest rates low in order to not have this sort of pressure on the government budget. So it is really interesting that we're at a time right now when everyone is, is clearly calling for higher interest rates, which really points to how much everybody's more focused on the impact of day-to-day you know, -day inflation on their, their constituents' budgets then thinking about what this is going to mean for the government budget. But we could see a shift in, in the coming months, uh, particularly as you know, interest rates continue to go up and they continue to, to, to bite more and more and more. You know, Terrence Sinclair, the reason people call for interest rates, particularly now for interest rates to go up and the Fed to, to get more aggressive, is it's seen as a successful intervention in the early 1980s when Paul Volcker uh, raised interest rates to really almost uh, unbelievable levels in order to slow the inflation or in reverse the inflation that was occurring in the 1970s. Has there been any rethinking? I mean, on this show in the past, we've had different kinds of economists on who who have called 
you know the 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 wisdom of the Volkershock in <laughs> into doubt. Um, mm-hmm. But is, that's not really the mainline view, right? I mean, the mainline view is all right. Inflation is rising, therefore the Fed raises interest rates, and that things that brings things back into balance. Right, right. I mean, there, I think there is. You know, there perhaps always has been debate about the effectiveness of the Fed and the particular tools that they use. Uh, and there is, I think, growing debate between you know, these mon- modern monetary theorist type approach versus uh, the more old school monetarist versus kind of the, the new modern Federal Reserve approach to thinking about monetary policy and its impact on the economy. But there is broad agreement that interest rates are going, you know, if they go up, that's going to have an impact on inflation, but what other kinds of impacts that that might have and whether that's the best approach for uh, addressing uh, you know, different economic conditions. I think at, at this point, inflation is so high that most people are on board with the idea of, of uh, that interest rates may need to go up, but it's still going to be a, a costly process. It's not, you know, an easy solution to a hard problem. It's a hard solution to a hard problem. <laughs> it's also struck me, though, too, that if we didn't have that policy recourse of like, OK, well, let's just raise rates, then what would we do to try and bring inflation down, given how broad-based the pain of inflation is for people? I think that's a, a, a great question. And I, I mean, I think that the standard answer would would then be that we need to find another way to pull back on spending across the board. Um, and of course, you know, one one approach that that people talk about from the fiscal side is is having you know potentially higher higher taxes or um, you know some other way of the federal government getting us to pull back on on spending. Uh, and I think that helps translate the idea of this being you know, a, a painful solution to a painful problem is that the, you know we we need to have you know, less money chasing, you know, the, the 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 fewer goods that we have out there. You know, to kind of paraphrase what Phil had said earlier. Yeah, we're talking about why the U.S. economy feels bifurcated and weird. What's causing that? Uh, we're joined by Tara Sinclair, professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington University. Sonia Diaz, founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at the University of California, Los Angeles. And Jerry Nicholsberg, Director and Senior Economist at the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And we would love to hear from you. We're going to get to some more calls after the break. How are you feeling about your economic situation? Have you changed your behavior because of what you're seeing in the economy? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or the emails forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I want to get to some of your calls on and questions about why the U.S. economy feels strange uh, right now. We're, of course, joined by Jerry Nicholsberg, Director and Senior Economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast, Tara Sinclair, Professor of Economics at George Washington, and Sonia Diaz, Founding Director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at UCLA. Gordon from Sacramento, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Tell us your story. I'm here. <laughs> well, um, I worked for a large corporation most of my life, and uh, then I started my own business about 12 years ago, and it's been a big up and down, but during the pandemic, um, things have actually been a little bit better. Um, you know, the the government assistance has helped, and I've actually been able to grow my um, empl- you know number of employees from about 8 to, to 14. Hmm. And um, in it, I, I run a computer parts business, so we get used equipment from data centers, and we sell them all over the world. And and you know we've seen changes, but we uh, have definitely been getting orders from all over the world for the whole time of the pandemic. Gordon, is there anything um, on the horizon that you're worried about, or do things look pretty sunny as you kind of forecast out? You know, there are so many. It's like listening to all the, the, the statistics that you guys talk about. There are so many different things that surprise us from year to year and month to month and even day to day. And uh, so I don't have any worries, but I don't have any expectation that things will be perfect either. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have, we just have to. The 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 one thing I was going to talk about was flexibility. You know, you've you've had a lot of people on air that have talked about pivot. Well, you change on a daily basis to you know to serve your customers, and you know, so yes, there have been things that we do now that we've never done before, and there's also things that we used to do that we we stopped doing, um, but they you know, that those things will come back, like moving data centers. You know, we've helped move data centers across the country, and that's slowed down. But um, people are still buying new equipment, and um, people are still improving their systems and selling old equipment, and and then other people, you know, buy the the used equipment. So it's like I tell everybody there's no one market. We have 25 markets. And that's, you know, probably not even true. It's probably more than that. But, yeah. you know, we and that's have just one small business. From... Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, Gordon, thank you so much. And... Uh, congratulations on the on the business. And I um, I appreciate that, that that perspective, both global and also, you know, in, entirely local as well. I want I want to get to a comment from listener Iris. Um, and this one is uh, coming to you, Jerry Nicholsberg. Iris writes, 
What about the economic impact of missed work, lack of sick leave, people being forced to come in sick or go without pay, and long COVID? The psychological effects of the pandemic. Anecdotally, within the disability community, we're seeing an influx of people with new additional diagnoses at varying levels of function and ability to work. Has any research been done so far on, on these effects? And if I could just extend that question by, by one line, which I think is a, a great question, Jerry, where would you look to see that in the data? Like, where would we expect to see that kind of uh, surge in, in disability in the economic data? So let me start with your last question. Where would we look to see the data? And I think there are two places we would look. One is in filings for disability, uh, social security filings for disability, for example. And the second is uh, in the labor force participation statistics. In particular, there is a quarterly survey uh, which goes down at the firm level, and you can look at that. The other aspect of this is that we have a labor shortage. So there are folks for whom being employed was not really possible because of implicit discrimination on the part of employers uh, who can now find a job. But to the point of the listener, uh, I think it's been well documented, not by economists, but by others in the social sciences that the pandemic, the isolation, the coping with long COVID has had uh, important psychological effects and important economic effects uh, to a large part of the population. And in particular, uh, young folks who are just coming out of school, uh, a comment was made earlier about, uh, uh, about here in California, uh, the Hispanic population being hurt differentially because many of them are coming out of uh, high school in underperforming schools and they were uh, then remote for two years. So I think those are the places where you look for the impact and it is definitely there. But I think at this point, we have no real measure of what that impact has been. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that explanation. I've been wondering that. Um, Ellen in Hayward, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Hey, um, I'm a small landlord. I own only one property um, that I rent out, and it's a house. And it's the pandemic was hellish for small landlords. Um, there was a lot of resentment on the part of our tenants. There were a lot of very strange regulations that came out. Even efforts to assist or um, tenants who were having trouble paying were inaccessible if the tenant if the tenants were not willing to work with the landlord. And there's been just incredible strife. I've spoken to others of my friends who own just a single house or a condo and have tried renting, and it's been hellish. And most of it is because of the regulations. Long term, it's also been pretty terrible because um, there's so many restrictions in this area specifically, in Oakland and San Francisco, on how much you can raise your rents, when you can raise your rents. Um, rent control, of course, in the state now is across the entire state. And inflation is going up. Will those restrictions um, go up as inflation goes up? Will the ceilings by which, at which we can raise our rents go up? Not nearly so quickly as inflation is. Um, many, many, many 
landlords, myself including, um, are coming out of the business. And it's one of the reasons there's this huge growth in these giant landlords. Mm-hmm. They buy up these properties and have the deep pockets to have um, lawyers fight this out for years. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, um, I'm stuck with a property uh, that has not received rent since September of last year. And the tenants are refusing to move. And the cost of kicking them out is all on me. And the regulations are decidedly in their favor. Sonia Diaz, what would you say to, to Ellen? I, you know, a lot of the work that, that, that you've done has, has been on rental protection. It's the exact things that, that um, Ellen uh, says has made her business difficult. So what, what do you say to her? Well, I think that it's hard. It's hard, especially for individuals and families that are landlords in comparison to major corporations or businesses um, for whom they have made a lot of profit on this. And so some of the regulation that comes out of the state, the federal government, and then municipal governments needs to take into consideration people that have, you know, less than five properties and think about how some cash relief can get to them and ease that. What I'm hearing, though, is is that there is a regulatory scheme that disadvantages landlords, and I don't know that that is accurate. And I also heard that there's statewide rent control, which also, again, is erroneous. One of the things that needs to happen is we need to make better policy that keeps people in their homes so they don't get sick, while also ensuring that we have the labor force necessary to propel our economy into the future. To Helen's point in terms of owning property, it's important to maintain that property, and it's important to be able to make do on your bills. Totally hear that. There's a role for government to play there. There's also a role that we need to start assessing when we think about the historic redlining and the barriers to wealth creation and to habitable homes that are necessary. And so to that, I think that there needs to be a state strategy around affordable housing and rent relief and rent protection that is clear, um, that has a high level of efficacy, and that is reaching those most disadvantaged. And as part of that, we need to start considering the landlords that are family or individual landlords that don't own a lot of properties to make sure that they are made whole as well. And so both things can be true, but ultimately we have a history here in California and across the country of making it so that some people have a pathway towards economic well-being and home ownership and affordable housing while others don't. And a lot of it has to do with race and ethnic background and socioeconomic status. Thanks for your uh, perspective, Alan. I appreciate that. And I think the the small landlords often do get sort of left out of these discussions. Um, we have another caller that would like to talk about the bigger uh, landlords, Lamont in San Pablo. Uh, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask a question of your uh, panel um, uh, the housing situation, in my view, um, started before the uh, pandemic. Uh, it was uh, 2008 when you had a lot of um, large um, institutional investors buying up homes. And it seems that the trend is still continuing. Um, they have very deep pockets. So uh, if you're middle income and you're looking to get into an entry-level home, uh, they're just not there. 
And um, one of the reasons is that you're having to compete with the large investors that are looking to maximize their profits. And um, when you have a business model like that, it's hard for uh, young families starting off to get into the market. Mm -hmm. And now that we have um, less building, I think it's um, important to allow uh, families to get in uh, without having the large investors competing against you because in the long run, you're going to lose. The homeowner that is selling their home, they're looking for uh, top dollar. And and a lot of um, the properties that were taken out of the market in 2008 were distressed properties. And um, it seemed like that they were sort of bundled up and offered to mm-hmm. investors and not to, uh, you know, uh, middle-income families. And yeah. so, There's a great you know, book on this by one of our KQED people called Home Wreckers, which I'd recommend to anybody out there by by Aaron Glantz. Um, thank you so much, Loma. I, I, I agree. And thank you for bringing in that, that recent history, which I do think particularly in our local area, uh, as well as some of the other areas that were hit, hit really hard during the, the downturn. Uh, bringing that in into the conversation, I want to get to one more sort of, I'm not going to go so far as to call it a paradox, but one thing I'm confused about. Um, in the economy. Uh, and Jerry Nicholsberg, um, director and senior economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast. The question is, we have people spending a lot of money right now. Consumer spending is very strong. And yet we have consumer sentiment looking bad. People feel bad about the economy, but are still spending a lot of money. How do we make sense of that? So, uh, first of all, you know, what we see in the data and looking at this consumer sentiment survey and looking at individual behavior going back in time is that uh, we feel good about uh, the economy and we go to the mall and go shopping. We're sad, so we go to the mall and go shopping. Uh, There's not a huge correlation between consumer spending and sentiment. And the reason is the way in which the sentiment surveys are constructed. Uh, What you really want to know is, do people feel confident in their incomes, confident in their jobs and in their future? And uh, and the answer is yes. Do they have confidence in the future of the economy? Well, they hear a lot of things that make them very nervous. uh, And so the answer is no. And then one of the questions that is asked, which I think is important for understanding inflation today and whether it's going to be a uh, more uh, permanent thing or a continual thing going out into the future is they ask, uh, are you going to buy, do a large purchase like an automobile in the next six months? And a lot of people are saying no because they expect the price of cars to come down. Historically, when people say no to that question, it means that they're not confident in the future. In this case, they're confident in the future of inflation, meaning that they're gonna pay a lower price by waiting six months. So the surveys are not really representative about the way people feel about their own personal economic future. And and that's, I think, the way you make sense of that. Mm -hmm. Tara Sinclair, is that your same perspective that that you have? Oh, that's, well, it's actually super interesting. It's like another aspect of the weirdness of uh, the, the data at the moment. Um, and so 
And I, I do think that there is also some perception uh, from a lot of people. You know, they're, they're looking at gas prices. They're looking at food prices and they, they may be spending more, but they feel like they're getting even less because these really salient prices that they're seeing day to day are just going up at such high rates relative to what they've seen before. So I, I do think that there is some, some genuine sense of, of despair about the economy from, from a lot of, of consumers, uh, you know, even though um, you know, they are going out and, and spending money. But also, I mean, a lot of it is that they, they are making up for, for lost time. So they may not really feel like their increased spending now is really bringing them as much joy as if they had been able to spend throughout the pandemic. Yeah. You know, Tara, thinking about the economy uh, as a whole, when do you think the trends will sort of normalize? When, when do you think we'll get back to the trend lines that we were on pre-pandemic, or do you think we won't? I think for a lot of trends, we're pretty close to getting back to that pre-pandemic line already. Um, you know, For most data, we've already reached pre-pandemic levels, and then we just have a little bit more to go to catch up to where we would have been trend-wise. Uh, but I, I think the bigger concern is where can we make up for all of that lost work experience and those lost months of income that that people didn't get during the pandemic? And you know, we had some assistance along that path, but for a lot of people, even you know, if we're getting just back to where we would have been anyway, that doesn't make up for all that they lost over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wanted to get to just a last couple of comments. Wayne writes. While it's great you're focusing on this problem, let's not forget these woes are worldwide and may need global solutions, not to mention the deeper structural problems coming because of climate change. And Noel tweets, women mostly have to deal with child care and elder care, and that means they can't fully participate in paid labor. Tax dollars need to support caring. We have been talking about why the U.S. economy feels weird, feels bifurcated, feels like we can't quite figure out if things are going well. Or they're not. We've been joined by Jerry Nicholsberg, adjunct professor of economics at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and director and senior economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. Thank you for having me. We've also been joined by Tara Sinclair, professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington. Thank you, Tara. Thank you. Finally, we've been joined by Sonia Diaz, founding director of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. Thank you, Sonia. Thanks so much. Stay safe. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Marisa Lagos. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.